This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, tensions are increasing between the U.S. and China over Taiwan. Now experts are wargaming who would win if the countries went to war and at what cost. Then a defense expert weighs in on whether the U.S. Navy's modernization efforts are on track for a potential Pacific showdown. And the Chips and Science Act is getting a lot of recognition for its potential boost to the semiconductor industry, but it also contains a big increase in funding for several federal science agencies. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the federal government. I'm Mimi Gerges. All summer, a group of experts and former military leaders have been playing war. They've been considering what would happen if the United States responded to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Mark Hansian is a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is hosting the Games. Mark, welcome. Thanks for having me on the show. So you've said this, quote, under most, though not all, scenarios, Taiwan can repel an invasion. Before we talk about what that would cost each side, what are the scenarios that Taiwan would not be able to repel that Chinese invasion? The scenarios uh, where uh, Taiwan could not repel an invasion are really very pessimistic. We have a, what we call a base case, uh, and in that case, the U.S., China, or U.S., Taiwan, and Usually, Japan uh, can repel an invasion pretty handily, although, again, at pretty high cost. And even in pessimistic cases, they're able to repel an invasion, although the cost gets increasingly uh, high. In the most pessimistic cases, uh, the U.S. is late, for example, to respond, waiting you know, maybe a week or two. Uh, then the Taiwanese have a much more uh, difficult time. The costs to Taiwan and the U.S. would be huge. Spell those out for us. In most of the uh, iterations, the United States loses about 500 aircraft. In the most pessimistic ones, uh, that goes up to about 900 aircraft. Uh, often we lose uh, two carriers, maybe 20 to 30 uh, surface combatants, uh, but are able to maintain Taiwan as an autonomous uh, entity. So we succeed, but at extremely high cost. You're saying up to 900 U.S. aircraft <clears throat> loss. Why? Why so many? What, what would be happening at that time? The challenge is that the United States has to move its aircraft forward into places like Okinawa before it's established maritime and air dominance. In the past, in the last generation, we've been able to do that against adversaries and be able to do it relatively quickly against the Chinese. It takes a lot of time. But we have to move forward in order to strike the Chinese fleet before the Chinese can establish themselves on Taiwan. So that means that these aircraft are operating forward, they're inside the Chinese missile envelope, and the Chinese missiles repeatedly attack them on the ground. In many of these scenarios, we lose 10 aircraft on the ground for every one we lose in air combat. Did the games indicate numbers of casualties that could be lost? We haven't calculated the specific number of personnel casualties, but you're into the tens of thousands. So it would be uh, a, sh a real shock to the United States and uh, a much higher uh, set of losses than we've experienced in the last generation. And this would happen within three or four weeks, not stretched over five or ten years. 
Mark, how significant is Taiwan's military? <clears throat> I, I know that they're being supported by the United States, but what impact would they have on, what did you see in the, in the games as far as what they could do in a potential conflict? Well, of course, the, the Taiwanese have uh, quite a strong military and they are improving it. Their ground forces are critical because that is their mechanism for um, holding uh, the Chinese invasion to a, a beachhead uh, and then eventually driving it off. Their air, uh, their air force is also helpful, although it comes under uh, intense attack by uh, the Chinese. Its surface navy uh, is extremely vulnerable. And one of the recommendations we make is that the, Chinese, that the Taiwanese should invest more heavily in what are called asymmetric capabilities, things like anti-ship missiles and mines uh, that would not be subject to uh, Chinese attack. Obviously, the Chinese have been conducting military exercises around Taiwan. What does that indicate to you about their strategy? Well, there are two things we see. I mean, first is they're being extremely aggressive. This last round of exercises was more than we've seen in a long time. So that impresses on everyone that this is a real military threat. What we're also seeing is their use of missiles uh, that have uh, landed around uh, Taiwan. And that emphasizes also their missile capabilities, which in our war games play very heavily uh, and uh, damage U.S. Um, air forces and ships very heavily. Did you take Japan into consideration in, in the war games? How would they, um, would they be involved at all? Uh, absolutely. Japan is a critical player. Our base assumption is that Japan would allow the U.S. to use its bases in Japan, places like Okinawa, but would not actively participate unless the Chinese attack their homeland. In most cases, the Chinese do that to take the, uh, to get at the U.S. Uh, air operations. That brings the Chinese, uh, the Japanese in. The use of their bases is critical. Their air forces uh, are also very uh, helpful, and their surface fleets uh, can also be helpful, although they're also very vulnerable. But the question is how... Uh, motivated would they be to become involved in, in something like that, or would they stand back and say, this isn't, my, uh, this isn't my fight? Well, our assumption is that initially they would do that. They would let, they would, um, inertia would probably rule, and they'd let the U.S. operate out of its bases, but they wouldn't be involved. But if the Chinese attack their homeland, you know, if the Chinese have launched hundreds of uh, air, uh, missiles against their air bases, for example, we believe that would bring the Japanese in. All right, so how, what's the best way to avoid conflict with China? I know it's a big question. <laughs> well, the best way is to have a strong deterrent. And there are several ways we can enhance that deterrent. Uh, we recommend, for example, buying a lot more uh, long-range anti-ship missiles uh, so that we don't have to push uh, forces uh, forward. Um, buying uh, and maintaining the, the bomber force, for example, is uh, very helpful uh, also. All right. Well, Mark, nice to see you. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me on the show later on Government Matters, what the CHIPS Act means for science funding. But first, the Navy's capabilities in the Pacific and how it could make better use of unmanned ships. Stay with us. In modernizing the fleet for a potential conflict with China, the U.S. Navy is looking to accelerate the development and deployment of robotic ships. Brian Clark is a senior fellow and director at the Hudson Institute. Brian, welcome. Nice to see you. Thanks, Mimi. Great to see you. The Navy participated in um, the 2022 Rim of the Pacific exercises. Right. This is called RIMPAC. That was this summer. Before we talk about specifics, 
Describe those exercises and what were the major takeaways? Yeah, so RIMPAC is the world's largest naval exercise. Uh, it brings together a couple dozen countries from mostly the Pacific region, a few though from outside, uh, you know, some European countries contribute. Um, and you bring together you know, tens of thousands of sailors, uh, you know, several uh, fleets of ships, so a couple dozen ships as well. Um, and they do exercises ranging from the simplest things, just you know, operating together at sea, avoiding collisions, all the way up to sinking ships with missiles and torpedoes. Uh, so it runs the whole gamut, um, and they operate with different allies and partners depending on their level of sophistication. You know, so for example, with the Australians and the Koreans, they'll have them, they'll do full-on sink, sink exercises. And then with smaller allies, they'll do these sm smaller operations like amphibious landings. So the Navy is investing heavily in robotic ships. Right. Is that a wise investment in your view? Uh, absolutely. I, I think what we're finding is that um, the Navy needs to be able to distribute the fleet more to be able to create more targets for an opposing force to have to shoot at, like the Chinese. Uh, it creates more confusion for the Chinese in planning and decision-making processes. Uh, but more importantly, it helps the Navy to be able to do some of the operations in these really um, highly contested, high-risk areas where you may not want to put a manned ship uh, at risk. So uh, one area in particular is undersea. You know, I think we've long said that submarine are always going to be able to get in and be able to threaten an opponent's ships or, or uh, land bases ashore. Uh, that's not necessarily the case anymore. Other countries are investing in anti-submarine warfare the same way we have. Uh, and we have to start thinking about using unmanned uh, undersea vessels to go in and defeat some of those undersea defenses like SOSIS arrays that other countries might have to allow our submarines to get in. So I want to ask you about an unmanned surface vessel right. teaming up with a destroyer, which is manned. Yeah. Uh, how does that work? What are the benefits of that partnership, so to speak? Yeah, so the Navy's looking at uh, unmanned surface vessels for a couple of different missions. So one is um, the unmanned surface vessel might carry missiles and act as essentially an additional magazine for that manned surface combatant. So the, the destroyer drives around, um, finds a target that it has to engage, uh, for, or finds an air threat that's coming in. It can use the missiles on that unmanned ship first uh, it, before it uses its own missiles to expand its capacity. And then when it needs to reload, it can send off the unmanned vessel to reload and come back, and the, the destroyer doesn't need to leave its station. Uh, another way it can use it is as a decoy or as a sensor platform. So it can send that unmanned vessel forward in the higher risk areas where it can act as a decoy to pretend like it's a ship and attract an attack and you know flush out the enemy. Uh, or it can go out there and be a sensor platform that extends the reach of the destroyer's sensors. And, and how would unmanned vessels um, enhance joint operations with allies and partners? Right, so I think a, a key area here is that um, right now allies are afraid of being left behind as the U.S. builds more and more sophisticated ships and aircraft. Unmanned aircraft and unmanned vessels are a great way for allies to be able to contribute because they can build um, platforms of similar sophistication as the U.S. can. So you think about the Reaper drones that we use um, in the Middle East. Those are That technology is available to multiple U.S. allies, and it's something that they could deploy that would be able to operate with U.S. forces and not feel like they're at a disadvantage or they're, they're a second-class citizen when it comes to these naval operations. So unmanned vessels are a great place where U.S. and allies can operate with the exact same equipment and conduct operations at the same level of uh, sophistication. Is this the future of naval operations? And, and is, is the Navy putting these unmanned vessels to, to their best use? Right. Well, uh, it is the future. I mean, we're already seeing multiple naval leaders have said they anticipate the future fleet's going to have uh, at least a third of its ships uh, be unmanned and at least a third to 
to a half of its aircraft be unmanned. So we're definitely moving that direction uh, to get the scale and the, the sort of distribution of the fleet that you need. Um, the Navy has not really done a great job as of yet in deploying these systems. They recognize the need for them. They have a lot of R&D programs going on, but they really haven't transitioned very many into operational use. And the Congress has been beating them up about it um, over the last several years of, of authorization bills and appropriations bills. So the Navy is working right now to come up with a more coherent strategy to match up what it needs uh, from unmanned vehicles and the level of technology that they have today and try to marry that up so that we're able to you know, get some of these systems out in the near term uh, as opposed to continuing their development into some future time when hopefully they can be more useful. And, and we talked about their use in combat. What about gray zone uh, operations, yeah. which is just short of actual combat? Right. So uh, you know, some unmanned vessels might be useful in gray zone operations. So you could see unmanned undersea vessels being used or vehicles being used to go and um, degrade an opponent's uh, sensor arrays or you know, uh, go and uh, interfere with uh, island building operations in the South China Sea. Um, with some level of deniability. Uh, but on the surface, unmanned vessels are maybe less useful because what it does is they, they may, they're, they're vulnerable to being you know, hijacked, essentially, by an opponent because there's no people on board and they can't just have self-defenses that shoot whoever comes along. So an unmanned vessel is going to be vulnerable in the gray zone to potentially being taken over by an opponent. So for that reason, the Navy's looking at an option where most of these unmanned vessels would be manned uh, during day-to-day -day operations, um, and then they would take the people off when you go into a wartime situation. And really, Brian, all this is about uh, countering China. Right. Where is the Navy falling short currently when it comes to a conflict with China? Well, uh, I'd say that it's, it's falling short in uh, you know, being able to maximize the ability of its submarines to do the kinds of operations we've traditionally planned for them to do, so dealing with undersea defenses that opponents are starting to field. Um, I'd say on the surface, they're, they're falling short in having this fleet of unmanned vehicle, unmanned vessels that can act as sensors or as decoys. Uh, and then most importantly, they're, they're falling short in the air, where they, they are now fielding an unmanned air vehicle that's going to go fly from the carrier um, and be able to do tanking. Um, but that vehicle could, could also do some of the offensive operations that the Navy needs to do at really long ranges. So that's an area where the Navy's falling short is in getting those systems out to the fleet. All right. Well, Brian, nice to see you. Thanks for coming Good in. Good to see you, Mimi. Thank you. Still ahead on Government Matters, the National Science Foundation's budget just ballooned thanks to the Chips and Science Act. We discuss the impact the funding could have on innovation. Stay with us. On August 9th, President Biden signed the $208 billion Chips and Science Act. Much of the focus has been on how the money will affect the semiconductor industry. But the bill is also intended to revitalize American competition in other science and tech industries. Mitch Ambrose is a science policy writer for the American Institute of Physics. Mitch, welcome to the program. Great to be on. So this is a big surge in funding for sci uh, science agencies. What was the rationale behind the administration and Congress wanting to increase funding to that level? Hmm. So going back a couple decades, actually, there's been an interest in Congress in raising the budgets of certain research agencies, in particular, National Science Foundation, Department of Energy, also the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And those three agencies, the funding hasn't grown as nearly as fast as, say, the National Institutes of Health. So there's been a push going back to the, uh, the Bush administration, the uh, younger Bush, um, to really select those agencies for big increases. There was these things called the America Competes Acts uh, of 2007, 
and 2010. Uh, but that was right before the economic downturn of 2008, and there was the Budget Control Act politics, so that big push at that time didn't pan out at all, really. And back then, it was a similar concern as to now other countries, uh, particularly China, really ramping up their research systems, uh, putting a lot more um, money into science generally, and the U.S. was falling behind in a relative sense. And so that, we've got another surge of that concern again, and which led in large part to the, this, this new legislation. Um, one thing that's really important to keep in mind in this context, though, is that, um, as you said, there's been lots of focus on the CHIPS money, and so there's about $50 billion in real money for the, the CHIPS industry. Um, and then there's the, the rest of the bill sets very ambitious growth targets for those agencies I mentioned, like the National Science Foundation. Um, and so about a doubling of the NSF budget over five years um, and, and similarly ambitious increases for those other agencies. But it's actually just only authorized money at the moment. And you know, so, I was going to ask you about yeah. that. This is authorized, not um, appropriated. So what's the likelihood of it being appropriated at those levels? So now there's, um, th there's a lot of concern in the research community that Congress might not follow through on these um, these, it's, it's essentially the bill just makes recommendations uh, to Congress saying, okay, laying out a vision for increasing the budgets. And what happened with those earlier uh, pieces of legislation is that it, Congress actually didn't follow through for various reasons. So, so now there's going to be a very concerted effort by, um, you know, advocates for those agencies to convince Congress to follow through. And that's going to be enlisting people in, say, the, the business sector, to, to really make the case for why this science funding is important to national competitiveness. So mostly you had said that it's the National Science Foundation, NIST, Department of Energy. Let's talk specifics now. Um, uh, NSF, um, lawmakers defined NSF's new Directorate for Technology, Innovation and Partnerships. What did they decide? So there was a big debate between the Senate and House on this. The, the Senate wanted it to focus on just 10 key technology areas, they called it. Things like AI, robotics, uh, advanced telecommunications, um, whereas the House didn't like the idea of just zeroing in on 10 technologies. I mean, NSF is historically focused on science, and um, there was some concern that you dilute the mission of the agency by having it really hone in on this later stage research, more, more um, technology-oriented research. And so they reached a compromise where the House was advocating for this new directorate to also focus on societal challenges, uh, things like climate change, uh, inequality in society, things that science can have a, a contribution to helping solve these, these problems and, and not necessarily have it be a technological solution. So they managed to work it out, and now the big question is, will um, what the budget for this directorate will be in the coming years. It started off at a relatively small level, um, and we'll see how, how Congress follows through. The Biden administration um, says that this legislation will drive growth in STEM education. Mm -hmm. How would that work? Yeah, so that is a huge focus throughout the bill, workforce, uh, both on the, the CHIPS side and on more generally. So there's about $200 million specifically for the National Science Foundation to create new uh, workforce development programs for the chip sector. And that's, that's real money that's directly in the bill. Um, things like uh, curriculum development, faculty hiring, um, traineeships. But there's also, you know, in the, in the doubling of NSF, they want to raise 
uh, certain specific programs, um, like there's a graduate research fellowship program that NSF is, um, is one of their flagship programs. So really growing the number of fellows that can participate uh, each year um, and, and lots of similar programs, I'd say. Mitch, do you think this money is enough? Uh, do you think it will actually make a difference in the long run, in the short term? I think if they were to follow through with, uh, it's about a doubling of NSF, um, about a doubling of NIST, um, um, that would be pretty transformative if they did that over the time scale of, of five years. Um, and these agencies have been, you know, with coming out of a decade of relatively um, flat budgets if you incorporate inflation, with inflation being even higher, I mean, these agencies are really looking for to just get out of the cycle of relatively flat budgets. And we started with China, and I'm assuming that they have a bigger budget for science than we do. Well, there's been a lot of um, analysis of that. There's um, this report called the Science and Engineering Indicators that's published um, on a cycle that really looks at how much is the U.S. spending relative to other countries. And it can be difficult to compare buying power in different countries. Um, if I recall right, the last time they did this, um, and uh, the U.S. was still on top, and China was number two in terms of total spending. Um, another met metric is what is your the fraction of GDP that you spend on um, science, and the U.S. is ahead of uh, China in that. But there's uh, certain countries like South Korea that are much higher in terms of their R&D intensity than the U.S. And so there's lots of different ways you can measure uh, this sort of um, you know competitiveness metric. All right, Mitch. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast, avail available on all major listening platforms. You can also find every podcast episode on our website at govmatters.tv slash podcast. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are 
satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.